This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning before we start. This podcast contains some strong language. This is what Australia woke up to on the day after the 11th. Almost as soon as the news broke, so did violent and ugly demonstrations right around Australia, with a particularly violent demonstration in Melbourne with police wagons at one stage driving into a crowd, knocking protesters and police alike to the ground. For Whitlam's supporters, his dismissal caused shock confusion and anger. Oh, I've just got no words to describe them, believe me. I reckon it's disgusting. I imagine we could be in for a pretty stormy period. Malcolm Fraser was now the caretaker Prime Minister, and a four-week election campaign had begun. How many people here want the Liberal Party to govern after December the 13th? We will fight for that right. Against the government that is been improper against the government that has lied to the parliament. Fraser offered voters a vision of a stable future. On December the 13th, vote for prosperity, vote for responsibility, vote for something that Mr Whitlam can't promise in a thousand years, integrity and responsibility in government. While Fraser talked about stability, Whitlam moved to capitalise on the sense of injustice that he and his supporters felt. The whole future of Australian democracy is in your hands. Is Australia to continue to be a parliamentary democracy? Are we to have governments elected by the people through the people's house? These are the questions... And upon the answers you give depends the survival of parliamentary democracy as we know it, or as we all believed we knew it, until the 11th of November 1975. Remember that day. Mr Fraser's day of shame. But most Australians didn't want to remember Whitlam's outrage just reminded voters of the years of division, dysfunction and scandal that surrounded his government. And when election day came around, they totally rejected Whitlam's message and his government. Tonight is the moment of truth for Australia's political leaders, and who will it be? Four weeks after Whitlam lost his job, he lost the election. Malcolm Fraser's Liberal Country Party Coalition was voted in with one of the biggest majorities in Australian political history. They won by a record 55 seats. Mr Fraser, could I just ask you if you regard the size of the majority as a vindication of your stand over the past couple of months? The size of the majority places a a tremendous responsibility on us to uh, govern in the interests of all Australians. After the election, Australia wanted its politicians to just get on with governing. But that didn't mean that everyone was happy to forget about the dismissal altogether. In years to come, as the dust settled on this extraordinary chapter, people still wanted to know what had really happened on the 11th of November 1975. Some people didn't even know if they could trust their democracy anymore. What they did know was that something unprecedented had gone down, 
and it felt like there was more to the story. There were still so many things we didn't know, including the answer to one crucial question. Did the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, act alone? I think there are enormous secrets and deceptions at the time of the dismissal. Was it serious enough to warrant the removal of Gough Whitlam? I learned that I could not trust them. What happened with the dismissal was an Australian failure. Kerr was writing to the Queen several times a day. This is a very, very delicate matter. I'm Alex Mann, and this is the final episode of The Eleventh. In the years following the dismissal, there was plenty of time for people to think about who, if anyone, might have helped Sir John Kerr get the job done. I imagine Whitlam's true believers in those early days scratching their heads trying to understand what had just happened, as if it was a kind of mystery that needed to be solved, trawling through the Whitlam government's years in office for clues. Like that time when Whitlam, just three weeks into the job, criticised the US for bombing North Vietnam. Nixon says this is a very, very stupid thing to do. Then, just a few weeks after that, Whitlam's Attorney-General had raided ASIO. This was like a domestic intrusion. And in the process, compromised the security of the secrets that ASIO shared with the CIA and pissed off the agency's most senior operatives. It was done as an adversary. It was a raid. Then, in the midst of the crisis, Whitlam had made that outrageous accusation that the opposition was funded by the CIA. These men who are subsidised by the CIA. And on the very day he was dismissed as Prime Minister, Whitlam was planning to stand up in Parliament and confirm the identity of a former CIA agent. All this during an era when the US government had supported groups plotting a coup against another left-wing government it didn't like in Chile. For those who were already suspicious of the US and its secret service, the timing was uncanny. Let me say, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I usually think it's a fuck-up um, rather than, um, than conspiracy. Usually it's someone stuffed up. Um, so this doesn't fit my normal modus operandi. Ray Martin was a correspondent living in New York when Whitlam was dismissed. And when he started connecting those stories he came up with something pretty radical. There were so many things that happened leading up to November the 11th, 1975, uh, that involves the Americans and puts the American finger in the Australian pie, um, that it's hard not to believe they weren't somehow involved. For those who subscribe to this theory, the thinking goes like this. The US and its intelligence agency, the CIA, were extremely concerned about Whitlam's left-wing government, They also knew that in the coming months, they would have to start renegotiating with the Australian government to renew the lease on their precious listening station at Pine Gap. So to preserve their secrets and protect Pine Gap, they'd somehow leaned on Sir John Kerr to sack Whitlam. From his post in the US as a foreign correspondent, Ray Martin scored a series of exclusive interviews that helped push that theory along. 
The first was with the retired boss of counterintelligence at the CIA. James Jesus Angleton. Who detailed for the first time just how concerned the CIA was about Whitlam's government. And in particular, how concerned they were when Whitlam's attorney general had raided ASIO. So Ray asked James Jesus Angleton the big question. Was it serious enough, if the situation was the way you describe it, to warrant the removal of Gough Whitlam? No, of course not. Absolutely not. It would simply be inconceivable to meddle in the internal affairs of Australia. Right, OK, so that's a no. But Ray wasn't, and still isn't, really convinced by that answer. Remember... This guy deals in secrets. Him saying that they weren't involved in the Australian election, I don't know whether they were or not, is not to be taken at face value. He had no reason at this stage to tell the truth. Then Ray got a tip about another CIA connection who might be willing to talk. And this man's story would add more weight to the theory. But to interview him, Ray would have to go inside the maximum security prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. This is a really the heaviest of the American prisons. There's serious murderers, serious rapists, in this case a spy as well. The spy inside the prison was a young man named Christopher Boyce. And he had a story so crazy that it would eventually be turned into a Hollywood movie starring Sean Penn. Boyce was a private security contractor who'd been locked up for selling the CIA's secret messages to the Russians. But it was what was in the secret messages that came across Boyce's desk that were of interest to Ray Martin and to Australia. Media groups across the US had been chasing Christopher Boyce's story, but Boyce only wanted to speak to Ray. So Ray scored this interview for Channel 9's 60 Minutes. Ray's first question to Boyce was an obvious one. So why choose us? Because you're Australian journalists and because I... What kicked this all off was deceptions by my government against yours. Christopher Boyce was 21 years old when he started working at an aerospace company called TRW. TRW was responsible for building CIA satellites to spy on Russia and China and passing on the messages they intercepted. Boyce's job was essentially to receive, decipher and pass on the messages that came in from American intelligence and security installations around the world. One of the key installations he received messages from was Pine Gap, in the middle of the Australian desert. And they would then decipher the messages and send the deciphered, obviously secret information onto the CIA in Washington or in Virginia. So the information Boyce was exposed to was top secret, highly classified and confidential. And the place in the TRW building where it was kept was a super secret room called the Black Vault. But calling something the Black Vault doesn't actually make it secure. And in the interview, Christopher Boyce can be seen slouched in his chair, looking back at Ray Martin through squinted eyes. Then, as he puffs on his cigarette he starts telling stories about the ridiculous things that he and his workmates used to do inside that black vault. Pretty wild scene. I walked into it. Uh, The black vault was almost like the uh, project bar. This interview was like a window into another world. As Boyce told Ray stories about booze-fueled parties, a small marijuana crop growing inside the vault... And then this one, 
about how he and his colleagues had even found a creative use for the CIA's document shredder. We used to make daiquiris in the document destruction blender. You can almost hear Ray do a double take. What, the CIA shredder? Yes, to make daiquiri drinks. Put it to some use. The camera flicks back to Ray Martin, and you can see this huge smile on his face that he's failing miserably to hide. Then he gives up and just chuckles out loud. Now, now that's, again, that's the, that's the centre. That's where the, the top information... They were doing it before I got there. It wasn't my idea, but made a hell of a daiquiri. Christopher Boyce knew about Pine Gap. He knew that the base existed on Australian soil under an agreement between the Australian and US governments. The deal was that the US could have their secret base in the desert as long as they shared certain information they collected with the Australians. Boyce was responsible for handling a lot of the intel that came in from Pine Gap. But soon after he started working at TRW, he realised that not all of it was being shared with Australia. So you were told that the Americans would not live up to the agreement that they had... That all information wouldn't be shared, no, and wasn't being shared. I mean, that's very important. I mean, there was no attempt to try and hide it. That was, that was part of your briefing. Definitely, yeah. Boyce's revelations in his interview with Ray were explosive. Not only was he alleging that the US was in breach of its agreement with Australia... He was also saying that the organisation he worked for, TRW, had a totally cavalier approach to protecting the secrets it handled. In one case, Boyce said he heard his colleagues speaking openly about how they disliked Whitlam's government. Boyce says it was this attitude towards a US ally that turned him against his home country and set him on the path that would end in him selling secrets to the Russians. One of the things that most troubled Boyce was a comment by a CIA staff member about the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. There was references to uh, your Governor-General by the Central Intelligence resident, they call Mr Kerr, our man Kerr. This was where the interview had real potential to cause a stir in Australia. Boyce didn't quite know what a Governor-General was, but he knew that the position sounded important. He thought he was obviously top of the pile, that he was a, a king-like figure in Australia, and yet he was referred to by his colleagues as our man Kerr. But as far as evidence goes, unverified claims of someone saying our man Kerr is not exactly rock solid. And it's worth saying explicitly that there is no evidence at all to suggest that Kerr was in the pockets of the CIA. So the, the smoking gun, I wonder whether the smoking gun exists. We don't know. All the, the strands point towards some involvement, but there isn't uh, the evidence that you'd put up in court and say there's no question that the Americans were involved. But there's another strand that perhaps goes a bit further than our man Kerr. In a private area of the Qantas Lounge at Sydney Airport, a small group of VIPs were gathering. There was only four of us in the room. I want you to picture a really quite unpretentious, very business-like, small, wood-panelled room. I think there are some coffee and drinks on the side. This is someone you haven't heard from before in this series. His name is Richard Butler, and he worked as Whitlam's chief of staff after Whitlam was dismissed. I started working for Gough, I think it was four or five months, 
after the dismissal, followed by the election which he lost. There'd been a leadership spill, and despite his massive election loss, Whitlam had been reinstalled as Labor leader. It was 1977 when Whitlam and Richard Butler were unexpectedly summoned to this mysterious meeting in the wood-panelled room at the Qantas Lounge. They'd been called in to receive a message from none other than the US President Jimmy Carter. He wasn't there on the day, but his Deputy Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, and the US Ambassador to Australia were there in his place. They sat down and made a brief show of courtesy. Good to see you here, etc., etc. And we got very quickly down to business. First of all, he said, I have asked for this meeting on instructions from President Carter. This was to make clear that this was not a lightweight matter. This was not just to be a chat. Butler says the president's messenger, Warren Christopher, had rehearsed his message carefully, and it came in four points. The first point was about how Whitlam and Carter came from the same side of politics. This is the word he used, as fraternal parties. The second point was that the US respected the democratic rights of its allies. Next came an assurance. That as long as he is president, he will always respect the decision of the Australian people. So far, nothing too controversial. Whitlam, by the way, just listened to all of this carefully in silence. But then came the kicker. The final point was he wishes to assure you that there will never again be interference in the Australian political process. Not that they wouldn't ever, but that they will never again. Butler turned to look at Whitlam, who'd been sitting there quietly. I was sitting on his right, and he was to the left of me, and his head was bowed a bit, looking more at the table than at Christopher for a little while as this was being said and he was taking it in. Butler was confused. Why wasn't Whitlam reacting? Why wasn't he cross-examining the president's messenger to get some more information, searching for answers? It's like the words just weren't sinking in. Goff simply took note of what he was told by Christopher. I think he possibly even asked that his compliments be returned to President Carter and to thank him for, you know, the message that he'd sent. I mean, back to courtesies, as it were. For Butler, the takeaway was obvious. And that was Carter acknowledging that there had been deep hostility in Washington under Nixon, you know, towards Whitlam, and that there had been action taken by relevant United States authorities to interfere. What else could he have been talking about? But Whitlam didn't interpret the message like Butler. In the car on the way back to the office, Butler says that Whitlam's response to the meeting was muted. It's like he just didn't think it was that significant. And I've never known why, uh, except maybe his political and diplomatic judgment was better than mine. Goff is a very skilled statesman and perhaps he heard very loud and clear what was being said and formed the the judgment that this was not the time or moment to join issue about it, but simply to take note of what he'd been told and take it away and reflect on it. I mean, after a period of time, Goff kind of let the, the whole idea that there had been foreign interference 
in our polity directed to seeing him lose government um, was an issue that should be pursued further. He simply decided to let it go. When President Carter was asked in August 2015 about this meeting and about whether the CIA had interfered in Australian politics, he admitted the US had involved itself in other countries under previous administrations. But he said, I don't know about Australia specifically. It's easy to see why people find this story compelling. They look at a foreign government with a track record of political interventions around the world and they think, hey, maybe they intervened in our politics too. And as far as spy thrillers go, it really does have all the right ingredients. The CIA, spies, high stakes involving secret defence installations and the US-Australia alliance. But like all the best conspiracy theories, it also has a total lack of conclusive evidence. The best we've got is the word again, and the phrase, our man Kerr. And on top of that, the guy at the centre of it all, Gough Whitlam, well, he doesn't buy it. Ray Martin asked him about it. And I said, look, you know, I don't believe in conspiracies, but the threads all pull together in this. And he said, I don't think they did it. He said, I don't think they were guilty of removing me. He didn't even say, well, you know, the jury's out. Let's see what history brings in terms of it. But um, he said, no, he didn't think that he'd been a victim of any great conspiracy, so... Ray Martin's reporting was instrumental in revealing the depth of US government and CIA suspicion of Gough Whitlam. And Ray loves a good yarn. He's devoted his life and his career to finding them, getting people to share them, and then telling them to huge public audiences. But even he admits the final piece of evidence is just not there. And if after nearly 45 years no one's found it yet, then maybe it just doesn't exist. We don't have any proof. We've got all these strands that indicate whether it be Angleton, whether it be Boyce, whether it be Nixon, uh, Kissinger, etc. We don't have the smoking gun. All we have are strands. And, uh, and it remains a wonderful, you know, um, uh, novel. It remains a fantastic feature film. And maybe that fantastic feature film is obscuring another more important story. I mean, what happened with the dismissal was an Australian failure. This is something we got wrong. Journalist Paul Kelly says the theory of foreign intervention is a baseless distraction from what's actually a problem of our own making. This is something we stuffed up in terms of our leaders and our institutions. This is our own failing. And the effort to try and palm it off to the Americans and say, oh, this was an American conspiracy, um, is somehow pathetic. We've got to face up to our own deficiencies and our own failures. So that's where we're going to leave all this talk about the CIA. Putting all that aside, if Kerr wasn't pressured by the CIA or the US, you might think he had nothing to hide about what happened on the 11th of November 1975. But you'd be wrong. Kerr had secrets. Because instead of being open and honest with the Prime Minister and making his intentions clear, he'd covertly consulted with a range of powerful people, developed a plan behind closed doors, hid it all from the Prime Minister and then, once the deed was done, kept various details away from the glare of public scrutiny. But the secrets couldn't be kept forever. 
and eventually they began to surface. More than a decade after the dismissal, the first clue emerged. It was a story about a crucial phone call made on the morning of the 11th at 9.55am. A phone call from Kerr to Fraser. This is a truly famous phone call, always disputed. It's Sir John Kerr calling Malcolm Fraser. It's just a few hours before the dismissal. Although Whitlam had given Kerr permission to consult with Fraser, he knew nothing of this phone call. It was a phone call made in secret that Paul Kelly says should never have happened. The Governor-General is not a referee. The Governor-General acts on the advice of the Prime Minister. He doesn't act on the advice of the opposition leader. Any access the opposition leader has to the Governor-General is extended by privilege. On the phone that morning, Sir John Kerr wanted some commitments. So Kerr asks Fraser a series of questions. If Whitlam was dismissed and Fraser was made Prime Minister, would Fraser call and advise a double dissolution election? Would he agree to run a caretaker administration during the campaign? But Paul Kelly says that Fraser quickly realised these questions were much more than just hypotheticals. Fraser drew the obvious, the irrefutable conclusion that Kerr was thinking and planning about dismissing the Prime Minister. Fraser hung up the phone, jotted down some notes on a piece of paper and left it on his desk. One of his staffers would later find the note and make a copy. Sir John Kerr has always denied that this phone call happened. Paul Kelly is adamant it did. So I've called this the tip-off phone call. I think the evidence for this is overwhelming. And there's not just the direct evidence from Malcolm Fraser, there's also circumstantial evidence from other Liberals as well who were in the room or who spoke to Malcolm Fraser straight afterwards. Paul Kelly says by this point it was clear. Sir John Kerr was doing things no Governor-General had done before. The real motive is to ensure that this high-risk exercise, this extraordinarily high-risk exercise on which Kerr is embarking, actually goes smoothly and that he achieves the two essential conditions, the dismissal of Whitlam and the commissioning of Fraser. So it's, it's about Kerr. It's about Kerr ensuring that his plan works. Do you call that collusion? There's no doubt whatsoever that it has clear and distinct overtones of collusion. Fraser had a degree of prior knowledge that was denied to Whitlock. That's inexcusable. When I interviewed Fraser's chief of staff, Dale Budd, even he seemed kind of uncomfortable about this phone call. Bud wasn't there when the phone call happened, but he was the one who found and photocopied Fraser's notes from the call. It was uh, <laughs> highly unusual, irregular, um, for these conversations to occur. So, at worst, they were plotting together 
to take down the Whitlam government and at best it's highly inappropriate contact with the leader of the opposition at an incredibly tense political time, isn't it? I wouldn't uh, agree with the proposition that uh, Malcolm Fraser and uh, Sir John Kerr were plotting together. Was it inappropriate contact? Uh, I really can't can't explain or defend that. You wouldn't defend that? No, I don't defend that. Fraser isn't the only person that Kerr may have consulted with in secret – And there were more surprises in store for those who were combing through the evidence, trying to work out what had happened. I firmly believed that from the very first days of the dismissal, when I was about 20 years old, and I almost had a gut feeling that there couldn't be something so momentous take place with only the Governor-General making a sole decision on his own. Jenny Hocking is Whitlam's biographer. Three decades after the dismissal, when she started to try to make sense of Whitlam's downfall, she went to the National Archives to look over the papers of Sir John Kerr. These had been deposited many years earlier, but under the Archives Act, they only become available for view at that time 30 years after um, they, were, they were created. Hocking was one of the first to examine them. And I was absolutely staggered by their significance and by the fact that they hadn't become part of the historical research before that date. They were unopened. She went through file after file, and eventually she opened one that contained a bombshell. I do recall precisely opening that file, which had a very bland heading. There's no indication from it that it was going to be enormously uh, volcanic in the way that it was, transforming our understanding of the dismissal that, that we'd had previously. There's no doubt about that. The file came with a cryptic message, handwritten by Sir John Kerr. But it was also very florid in its language, very melodramatic. He says, if this document is found among my papers after I have died, it is because his role will be lost to history and it should be known. His, his role should be known. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, who's he? Who's this person that's had this extraordinary role? And I was absolutely shocked to see that it was Sir Anthony Mason. It was already known that Sir Anthony Mason was one of the High Court judges Kerr had spoken to just days before the dismissal. But until Hocking found this document, it was assumed that his contact with Kerr on the issue was minimal. What Kerr's files showed was that, in fact, Mason had been in secret communication with Kerr, advising Kerr on his powers since at least August 1975. It was an incredible revelation. It showed Sir John Kerr had been talking with Sir Anthony Mason about the possibility of sacking Whitlam for at least three months before he did it. That's well before Fraser blocked supply and forced Parliament into a deadlock. But Mason's role went even further. Sir Anthony's role cannot be underestimated. His role was so close and such an active one that he actually drafted a letter of dismissal for Kerr. And on top of that, when the dismissal was hanging in the balance on the afternoon of November the 11th, while the Speaker of the House of Representatives was kept waiting by Sir John Kerr... Well, I believe, I've been told just in the corridor, that they they now won't see the Speaker of the House of Representatives to have that motion conveyed to him. Kerr had called Sir Anthony Mason on the phone for advice. Kerr was concerned, rather belatedly you might think, concerned about the fact that the House of Representatives had now very clearly stated 
that it wanted the Governor-General to reinstate the Whitlam government. And Mason said to him that the motion of the House was irrelevant. So Sir John Kerr kept the Speaker waiting and finished off what he'd started. Shocked by the new information she'd found, Jenny Hocking arranged to meet up with Sir Anthony Mason. She wanted to know exactly what role he'd played in advising Kerr. I said to him very clearly, I know that you are one of only uh, two at that point people still living who can shed real light on what actually happened at that time. And I said, would you, in the interests of history, speak to me about it? And he looked at me and said, I owe history nothing. It's a brave man that tells a professor of history that they owe history nothing. I was so appalled by that comment from somebody who had spent much of his working life working in public office to have such an attitude that it was okay to take secret decisions that impacted enormously on our history and on our political history in particular, and yet not be prepared to speak about it publicly and deny any responsibility to history. But later, in 2012, Sir Anthony Mason was prepared to say something publicly about his discussions with Kerr. It was a 3,500-word statement published in the Sydney Morning Herald. In it, he admitted that Kerr consulted with him months before the dismissal, that he had advanced knowledge of Kerr's intentions, and that he'd prepared an early draft of a letter of dismissal. But he insists he didn't encourage or advise Kerr to sack Whitlam, and notes that Kerr didn't end up using the draft letter of dismissal that he wrote. Sir Anthony Mason's statement also contained another massive revelation, that he'd made it clear to Kerr that if he was going to dismiss Whitlam, he should warn him first, something Kerr did not do. We asked Sir Anthony Mason for an interview, and he declined. So months before the dismissal, Sir John Kerr had been shoring up his understanding of the powers he held, and hours before the dismissal, he'd secretly sounded out Malcolm Fraser to make sure his plan would work. But why the secrecy? Well, it's pretty clear that Sir John Kerr was afraid of losing his job. He knew that if Whitlam got an inkling of what he was considering, Whitlam might have contacted the palace and had him removed. But it's not really in the Governor-General's job description to go about making secret plans behind the Prime Minister's back. Kerr gave Whitlam no sense that there was even a possibility of dismissing the government. And this is a really critical factor, particularly in the context of his openness with others, is the contrast of that with his secrecy with the government of the day. For Jenny Hocking, the pieces were starting to fit together and the extent of Kerr's subterfuge was becoming clear. Then, in 2010, Hocking found something else in Kerr's private papers, something that, if it was true, had the potential to implicate Buckingham Palace in the dismissal of an Australian Prime Minister. It was a diary entry that would go on to cause a huge controversy and huge fights over the veracity and meaning of Kerr's words. It was about a meeting with Prince Charles in Papua New Guinea. 
In September 75, there was what you might now see as an almost Shakespearean sort of meeting of all of the people who later were the protagonists in the dismissal. Prince Charles was there, Sir John Kerr was there, and Gough Whitlam was there. The plane just arrived, the jet carrying uh, His Royal Highness Prince Charles landed from the... And what's taking place is Independence Day in PNG. Sir John Kerr, looking very smart, tall, blonde, dressed in a white shirt and black trousers, big time. In his diary entry about this day, Sir John Kerr details the conversations he says he had with Prince Charles. This is how Jenny Hocking interprets that diary entry. He had this extraordinary conversation with Prince Charles, and the extraordinary conversation included a discussion by Kerr that he may at some point need to remove the government from office. And remember, it's September, a month before supply is even blocked in the Senate. Which means, if it happened the way Kerr described, then like the secret consultations with Mason, this discussion would have been taking place before there was even a deadlock to warrant the government's dismissal. But he put to Charles that he was concerned that Whitlam might try to remove him from office. That if Whitlam got wind of the fact that the Governor-General was considering having to sack Whitlam as Prime Minister, that Whitlam himself might seek to remove Kerr as Governor-General. But what is it most extraordinary in Kerr's recounting of this conversation with Prince Charles was that Charles responded, but Sir John, surely you should not have to be recalled from office just when you are considering dismissing the government. Hocking interprets that statement like this, that Kerr shouldn't have to fear for his own job while he was considering sacking Whitlam. Now that is critical absolutely critical because it shows us that the palace through Prince Charles was aware of the possibility of the dismissal of the government in September 1975. According to Kerr's diary, Prince Charles then passes on those concerns to the Queen's private secretary, who then writes to Kerr, saying that in this kind of scenario, quote, although the Queen would try to delay things, in the end, she would have to take the Prime Minister's advice. In other words, rather than acting on the advice of the Prime Minister, if Whitlam tried to recall Kerr from office as Governor-General, rather than acting on that, which in any constitutional monarchy is the requirement that the Queen acts on the advice of the Prime Minister, that there would be an attempt to delay things. If this is in fact what the palace wrote to Kerr, Jenny Hocking believes that Kerr would have taken comfort from it. He would have taken great strength from that decision from the palace, And he would have seen that as a raw green light for the action he was to take. So Jenny Hocking believes the diary notes show while the Prime Minister was kept completely in the dark, the palace was aware of what Kerr was considering. Here's the thing though, this has all become the subject of a huge controversy. Journalist Paul Kelly, for one, says the account of the conversation with Prince Charles is so extraordinary He doubts that it happened the way Kerr describes in his diary. It's an extraordinary exchange. Uh, If it's true, there would have to be a doubt about its veracity. There's no other anecdotal or documentary evidence to sustain this at all. Rather than concentrating on the part of the letter talking about delays, Paul Kelly looks at the other part of the letter that says, in the end, she would have to take the Prime Minister's advice which is basically just a statement of fact that if the Prime Minister tried to have Kerr removed, 
Eventually, the Queen would have to follow that advice. That's the rules. Kelly says he wouldn't be surprised at all if there was some chatter between Kerr and the palace in general terms about the possibility that the Governor-General might have to intervene, because at the time, a lot of people were raising that possibility. But in the end, he believes Kerr never told the palace that he was going to sack Whitlam, and that he never sought their approval. That is the long-standing, long-documented position of the Governor-General. It's the long-standing, long-documented position of the palace. It's what the palace and its senior officials have said repeatedly. It's what they have put in their documents to the Australian government. Gough Whitlam never, never made any such accusation that the palace or the Queen was party uh, to this, and we don't have any hard documentary evidence to the contrary. And that's what could resolve this debate once and for all, hard documentary evidence. Instead of relying on these vague descriptions and fragments from Kerr's diaries, what if we had copies of every letter exchanged between Kerr and the palace? Well, we actually do. We actually have those letters. They're sitting in a room in Australia's National Archives, but we're not allowed to look at them. There is actually a bundle in the National Archives called the Palace Letters. There's something like 40 or 50 letters, as I understand it. I was told that they were not available for public access because they were personal papers. The Palace Letters could be the last remaining trove of documents capable of shedding light on Sir John Kerr's private thinking at the time of the dismissal. And they could finally settle the question of what the palace knew, if anything, about what he was planning. But because the letters are classed as personal correspondence, they can't be made public until 2027. And even then, the palace would have the power to veto their release. For his part, Kerr said that when the letters were eventually released, they would show he'd acted properly. Jenny Hocking doesn't want to take Kerr's word for it. She's been engaged in a three-year court battle to get access to that bundle of letters. All Australians should have a right to know what the Governor-General was writing to the Queen and what the Queen was writing to the Governor-General regarding the removal of an elected government from office. So my quest is one in which I've faced a barrier and given that I have a capacity to try and open that barrier, I'll continue to do so. Ultimately, only Sir John Kerr knows why he acted the way he did. If you ask Kerr's supporters, they say he suffered unfairly for it, and that if people had a problem with how things panned out, they should direct their anger at Whitlam or Fraser, but not Kerr. In their view, the Governor-General was just the guy with the ability to resolve the crisis, using a power granted to him by the Constitution. He was acting in the national interests, and in the end, he just got caught in the middle. But whatever his motives, it's true that history has not been kind to Sir John Kerr. One of his last public appearances as Governor-General was at the 1977 Melbourne Cup. In this recording, the crowds can be heard booing and heckling as Kerr approached the microphone. He was visibly drunk. Life is wonderful for all of us, especially winners of the Melbourne Cup. About a month later, Sir John Kerr resigned his position as Governor-General. A decade after that, in 1987, 
he gave a rare interview with UK broadcaster Geoffrey Robertson. It's one of the few interviews he did where he talks at length about the events of November 11, 1975. Do you not think that the whole bitterness and anger that's erupted, it's made you a leper in your own land? Well, thank you for that observation. But it's true, is it not? No, it's not. Absolutely. That you're not invited to to functions, even still, 13 years afterwards. Look, Geoffrey, this is a very, very delicate matter that you're now into. I know what price I paid for what I did. I have no regrets about what I did because it was right. In the same circumstances, which were very special and unusual, I would do the same thing, with all the consequences involved. Sir John Kerr died three and a half years later, on March 24th, 1991. He was 76 years old. So what about Whitlam? Well, after the 75 election loss, he stuck around for the next election in 77, but he lost that to Fraser too. Whatever people felt about the way Whitlam lost his job, it seemed they didn't want him and the Labor Party back in government. In 1995, Whitlam gave a speech to mark the 20th anniversary of the day he lost his job. It was vintage Whitlam, filled with in-jokes and pointed barbs at Sir John Kerr's expense. Did he think I was some disc jockey from Quebec? And he obsessed over the dates and details of perceived betrayals. The 10th of October, the 17th of October and the 29th of October. What emerges is a desire for his story, the story of his downfall as he saw it, to be a matter of public record. I should first indicate my awareness that by now, these events truly belong to history for the great majority. But that need be no bar at all against the proper understanding of the truth of the matter. Like most great dramas, the central plot is simple enough. The essence of the operation by which my government was dismissed was secrecy. Secrecy was the absolute condition for the success of the intervention. But we're talking about secrecy sustained against the elected government and the Governor-General's constitutional adviser, the Prime Minister. It's this aspect that those who come fresh to the matter find most unbelievable. To his critics, Whitlam was arrogant, reckless and politically irresponsible. To his supporters, he was an idol. But to both, over time, he came to be recognised as visionary. His reforms around education, healthcare and Aboriginal land rights were decades ahead of his time and they transformed the country. As he grew old, Gough Whitlam made amends with Malcolm Fraser. In their later years, the two were more like friends than arch-political rivals. Gough Whitlam died in 2014, at the age of 98. Malcolm Fraser died just six months later, aged 84. Whitlam's head of department, John Menadue, continued working with Malcolm Fraser after he won the 1975 election. Menadue eventually left 12 months later. His ability to trust in our institutions never fully recovered. I learnt from bitter experience that I had to temper my trust of some people. 
Do you think that's what's so painful to recall about this, that you didn't just lose your boss, you lost a part of your own ability to trust? Yes, I'm, I'm more careful about trusting people now. Um, I guess we're all brought up to learn and believe that we need to trust people. To my bitter experience, I learned that I could not trust them. And that shook my confidence uh, in so many of our institutions, like the monarchy, uh, the Governor-General, that so-called powerful, influential people could not be trusted. And that's what I carry, that's the scar that I carry from the events of November 11, 1975. John Menadieu wasn't the only one who'd lost trust in our institutions. In the wake of the crisis, Australia's faith in democracy hit an all-time low. But Jenny Hocking says if we focus on that, then we risk learning the wrong lessons from this story. We often remember what Gough Whitlam said on the steps of Old Parliament House that day, maintain your rage. But we should also remember the full quote, which is maintain your rage and your enthusiasm. To maintain the rage and the enthusiasm that you are showing now outside the Parliament. Because even at his moment of his greatest despair in terms of the way the institutions of democracy worked over that period... His concern was not with the institutions per se. He never lost faith faith in the institutions, but he was deeply distressed by the actions of those who held positions of power in those institutions in that instance. So maybe this is the legacy of Whitlam's dramatic rise and fall, a lesson about the frailty of Australian democracy, and it comes with a warning, that the institutions that hold it all together are only as strong as the people at the top, prime ministers included. It's a lesson we shouldn't forget. Luckily, this story, once you've heard it, it isn't easily forgotten. Because as Paul Kelly says, it's just an unbelievably compelling story. It's the most extraordinary story. Where can you get a more dramatic, fantastic, unfathomable, incomprehensible and catastrophic story than this? It is the most compelling narrative about human nature and power. But beyond that is the more serious question. For young people, this is your country. This is what we are. This didn't happen all that long ago. It happened in the lifetime of your parents. They lived through it. And what it tells you is that democracy is not guaranteed. Stability and a proper functioning democratic system is not guaranteed. It needs to be worked at. It needs to be delivered. The 11th is hosted by me, Alex Mann. Supervising producer is Kim Roxburgh. Audio producers Nina Kopel, Shane Anderson and Ellen Liebeter. Our wonderful researchers are Steph Collett and Jane Curtis. Sound designer is Tim Jenkins. With additional sound design and the theme composition by Martin Peralta. Thanks to Justine Kelly and Ian Walker, who were there in the very beginning and very end. Our executive producer is Nikki Tugwell. 
The 11th is a product of ABC Audio Studios, led by Kelly Reardon. We hope you've enjoyed the series. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show. been listening to an ABC podcast. If you're looking for another great podcast, you might want to check out our award-winning true crime series, Unravel. And easily the best place to start would be season four, hosted by Ollie Wards, who has plenty of skin in the game. My brother married an American con artist. I find myself in a murky world of con artists and swindlers. This isn't the kind of story you would expect to happen to a pretty average Kiwi family like mine. I was just gobsmacked as to what's going on here. I just remember it being like, whoa. She had this dark, vivacious... And then, whoa. A surface skin and look to her. And then after like two or three woes... She's a sociopath. It wasn't really a surprise. You're like, I wonder what the next woe is going to be. What happened cost us everything. I held it up to the light and everything merged. In the end, my parents lost more than a million dollars. We'd been done. Mum and Dad ended up homeless. We just were destroyed. It all started when my bro Greg was a backpacker in London. Yeah, she's very bubbly, effervescent personality. He met Leslie Manukian. She has a laugh that could, you know, you hear it across the room. A confident, charismatic Californian. Well, let's throw in there Kim Kardashian lookalike, sophisticated female operative. She knew how to sort of work people. Ready to woo me as well. Greg was wooed. I was an Americanophile. So he brought his American dream girl home to New Zealand. When you marry someone, you feel like you really know them. Within a few months, Leslie had taken off to the US, and none of us ever saw her again. I was living overseas when all of this went down. I normally work at an Australian radio station, helping other people tell stories. Now, I'm going to investigate the story of my own. It was, it was so weird. Smuggled out of Armenia? What? Whoa, explain. <laughs> it is weird. It is weird. And as I start digging through what happened... <laughs> Weird doesn't even really cover it. She got on the wrong side of the local mafia. She witnessed... She might have got beaten up. Murder. Or she got home invaded in her house or something like that. They're going to kill me tonight, Dad. Basically being taken by these criminals. Got on this chartered airplane. Parents had to pay for a private jet to come get her before the mafia killed her. Oh, God. There's just so many questions. How did this happen? Why did this American woman con my family? Why did you do this? How did she just... Get away. Oh, shit. She's done it again. Who else has this happened to? Does the name Leslie Manukian mean anything to you? Oh, you bet. Never forget her. This woman's a bit kind of like, you know, not what she claims to be. And that was her allure. You just followed her. I don't think she ever thought she would actually get caught. It just started getting shadier and shadier. When I got home, there was a bong load, a martini, and a blowjob, and I just didn't think about it. 
F off, screw you, this is your karma. And who really is Leslie Manukian? Like a part of me believes that she's just like, oh, the scammer? A really broken person. You'll never really know what was real or not. To find answers, I'll have to get past her big shot lawyer to the stars. Can you believe this jerk? Oh my fucking God. (laughs) As your lawyer, I'm starting to make threats also. Are you serious? And I'm going to travel across the world to track Leslie down. What are we getting ourselves into? Okay. I'm running. Stand by. I'm Ollie Wards, and I want you to come with me. The snowball. For the new season of Unravel. Is about to hit you. This time, things really do get personal. She's walking just in front of you, bro. Where? In the middle. Join me for Snowball. Okay. I see her. Subscribe to Unravel. I see her. The ABC's award-winning true crime podcast. Oh, she's getting in a car. Wherever you're hearing this now. She's getting in a car. Damn it. Or on the ABC Listen app. Damn it.